Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Acts, chapter 3. A few weeks ago, Brother Tabor Gerald and I were having a conversation in my office, and uh, we were talking a little bit about where the early Christians would go for their worship services. There's an indication in the book of Acts that the church was growing so rapidly that in just probably a couple to three years, there were more than 20,000 people who came to know the Lord in Jerusalem. So the church was growing really fast, and you just have to wonder, with all these people that were being saved, where would they go uh, to have their worship services? Well, we were talking about that a little bit, and that's not what my message is about tonight. But it actually got me uh, to thinking about Acts chapter 3. And the reason I was thinking about it is because we were talking about the temple, and the temple is not a place where Christians would go for worship But it was a site of a lot of Christian activity and a lot of witnessing. And so I was thinking about this uh, third chapter of the the book of Acts and thinking about the first miracle that occurred after Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, he empowered the church for all the work that they were to do. And many miracles were performed after that. And this uh, message that we're going to talk about tonight that Peter preached came after the first miracle... And really, it was the instigation of a lot of persecution that came afterwards. So I want to talk a little bit about the miracle, but mostly uh, tonight I want to talk to you about this wonderful message that Peter preached right after Pentecost, after this first miracle. And really, it's a story of the whole panorama, panorama of the gospel of Christ. I'd like you to stand with me, if you would, please. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 3 in Acts. But keep your Bible open because the first 11 verses deal with the miracle itself, and then the message starts right after that. So keep your Bible open, because we're going to refer to the Scripture tonight. Verse number 1, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple in the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering." Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for each person who's come out tonight. Lord, as we consider this great message that Peter preached, I I just ask you, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to your gospel. Most, I believe, here tonight are saved, and so there will be some things that we'll remind folks of, but it's always good to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe, Lord, there is someone here who doesn't know you tonight, and I just ask you to speak to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Acts chapter 3 is the story of just a a bona fide miracle. 
Here is a man who is lame from his birth, one whose life had been relegated to that of a beggar. And here this man received special attention from Peter and John. The apostles, when they came into the temple, they they saw a man here who had a much deeper need than just the fact that he was was a a lame man and, and just the fact that he was a beggar. He couldn't walk, and so sitting there, as he was accustomed to do, he was expecting that as Peter and John came through, that there they would have some money that they would be able to put into his hand. But instead of offering him money, Peter and John came with a message that was much more precious, much greater than anything that he'd heard before, because Peter gave him the message of Jesus Christ. And so when this man asked for alms, Peter, the Bible says, fastened his eyes upon him. Now, most people uh, going into the temple ignored many of the beggars that sat there, and they would have passed this man on by because they just didn't want to be bothered by all the people that were begging for money. But when Peter and John went in, they were very concerned about this man, and so they said to him, look on us. And when that man looked up, no doubt he was expecting that they would give him some money. But that's when Peter spoke those famous words, silver and gold, have I none? And I can imagine that in, those, in that first moment after they said that, that this man was very disappointed. What possibly could Peter and John do for him if they didn't have any money to give him? And yet what Peter and John offered this man was more than he could ever expect. In fact, before even asking that he would be healed or receive anything from them, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, you can imagine that caused quite a stir in the temple. Here, these people see this man who for all of his life had been sitting there at the temple begging. Now he's up walking. He's praising God. Now, they were very amazed at what had happened to him. And so, as he went through and was shouting and praising God, no doubt that drew the attention of the crowd. Well, Peter was a Baptist preacher. When there's a crowd together, he was determined that he was going to preach. So he saw an opportunity there. If you remember, the very first message that Peter preached on Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. Now, if you preached one message and 3,000 people got saved, you're probably pretty emboldened to preach the second message, I would think, and think that you might do pretty well. So Peter didn't lack any confidence to begin preaching to the people. I want to take a few minutes tonight. We're going to talk about the sermon that Peter preached right after this first miracle. And as I said just a moment ago, his sermon included an entire panorama of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look first there in verse number 12 where his sermon begins. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. I want you to notice there those first two sentences because in these first two sentences, Peter sets down a principle that every preacher of the gospel, every person who gives the gospel surely ought to know. And that is, number one, that the credit for salvation belongs to God alone. 
Now, I don't think there's any preacher that's ever going to forget that, not a, not a true preacher of the gospel of Christ, because God is the one who has the saving power, and God alone is the one who has the healing power. So Peter says to the people, don't look so incredulously at us. Don't think that by some power that we have, by something that we've done, that, that we've made this man to walk. He said, we deserve no credit. All of the credit belongs to God. And so here are two men who preach the gospel, and they're not interested in having their names trumpeted all around Jerusalem as the great soul winners. They're not the ones who said, look at us, and they weren't expecting a pat on the back and say, invite me to the next soul winning conference that you have so I can preach there. Not these two men. They said, if our names are never mentioned, nobody knows any part that we have in this, let's glorify God because all the glory belongs to him. And certainly that is where all of our preaching must center. This is God's salvation. It's God's provision. This is God's doing. Salvation is not this cooperative effort between man and God. God doesn't need you to make salvation work. God is the one who chooses. God calls. God implements. God saves. God does it all. And so all the glory belongs to him. So the power of the gospel is God's power. Paul said, it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so when these people looked at Peter and John and they wondered, how did these men do this? I mean, how did this happen? That was a perfect opportunity for them. They could have received praise. They could have received a claim for it. They could have even asked for money for healing the man. But that's not what they did. They said, all the credit belongs to God, God alone. Now, I think that was a great place to start a sermon. That's where we always want to begin. We want to begin with God. And so the emphasis should always be upon the power of God and not on human instrumentation. The soul winner is never the one that's prominent. It always ought to be for every person who speaks to someone about Christ is they would pray before they do, hide me behind the cross. Let Jesus be the only one who's magnified. Now, let's go on, because next we see in the sermon that Peter moves on to the culprits in sin, and this is we alone. Here, a layman has a need. He's crippled. Got a real problem here, but but life goes on even if you're crippled. It's a wonderful thing that this man had the physical need taken care of. That's great that they were able to do that, but greater than that is what happened in this man's soul. I believe that when the Bible says in verse number 8 that this man leaped up And he began to praise God, that there he recognized God's power. And we notice that he didn't leap up and praise Peter and John. He saw the power come from came from another place. And so when a sinner gets saved, he doesn't praise the soul winner, he praises the one who 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 does the saving. And so the deeper need here is for people with sin sick souls. It's not the physical healing that's so prominent here. It's the it's the need of the soul. And the Terrible thing about this, the terrible thing about people who have a sickness in their soul, I mean, we're talking about sin sickness, is they don't even realize that the sickness is there. Here, Peter is preaching to a crowd that they have no idea really what they've done, and they really don't even care what they did. What did they do? Well, let's look at that. Just like them, we willfully reject Christ. That's what they had done. Peter says in verse number 14, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer, 
be granted unto you. Now, Peter starts off here with a scathing message. And what he said, most preachers would not say to most crowds today. Here are the people that crucified Christ. And Peter pulls no punches with them. Lots of times, even today, when we preach on this, that that preachers are very much aware of this, that the Jews do not like to have anyone claim that they are the ones who crucified Christ. And so, when you're speaking to Jews, or you may have some in the audience, or even when we're just speaking to people who are not Jews, we realize that people are very sensitive about some of the things we say concerning the gospel. But here, Peter uh, lays the blame exactly where it needs to be laid, and Peter doesn't soften up the statement at all. He tells them that you are the ones who denied the Holy One and the Just One. You desired a murderer be granted unto you. And if you go on and you read here verses 13 through 15, you'll see that over and over continually says, you did this, you delivered him up, you denied when Pilate would have let him go, you desired a murder to be released, you're the ones who killed the prince of life. And everything that they did was willful. And so there's no mistake about it. There's no, no doubt about it that these people are guilty here. They're, they're culprits in sin. They crucified, they rejected Christ. And of course, when we think about that, we, we don't let the Gentiles off of the hook. They were complicit in this as well. Pilate didn't have to crucify Christ. In fact, the Scripture says that he'd already declared that Jesus was a just man. He said he's not guilty. But Pilate, in order to appease the crowd, was willing to crucify Christ. Then you know what Pilate did? He stepped aside and he washed his hands in a symbolic gesture to say... I really have no part in this. But how wrong that he was, because Pilate also is guilty of crucifying Christ. But you know, as we think about that, there's not a one of us in this congregation tonight who can sit back and say, I have no part in crucifying Christ. That's not true. The Jews crucified him. Pilate, the Gentiles crucified him. And every one of us sitting here today, we all had a part in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, if nothing else, Jesus knows the future, doesn't he? He knows every one of us, and so there's nothing that's hidden from him. He's eternal God. He knows all things that come to pass. And so if you are a believer here tonight, Jesus Christ knew your sins. He knew exactly what you would do. And when he went to the cross, he died to pay for those sins. In Colossians, Paul said, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So the Jews, they saw... Uh, the miracles that Christ did. They saw what, what Jesus was able to do. They observed the life that he lived. They knew that he was undeserving of condemnation. And I would say to all of us here tonight that we know all of the same things. In fact, we probably know even more about than the Jews did. We have the written record of what Jesus did. We have all the evidence that's right here in the Word of God. And yet people today still reject Christ. But that's not all that Peter points out about the culprits. The second thing that I want you to see that he says about all of us, and that is that we are without excuse. Look at verses 17 and 18. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. 
And so, without doubt, there is enough evidence all around us to believe that there is a God. There's no question about this. Now, let's start with that, first of all, when we talk about all of us are without excuse. Romans tells us that by nature, that man knows that there is a God. You can't go out at night and look at the stars and not realize that there is a God. You can't go and look at mountains and see running streams and not believe that there is a God. You can't look at your own human body, look at your fingers and your toes, see a baby that's being born and think there is no God. I mean, there is sufficient evidence all around us to show us God does exist. I remember when my dad used to come back from vacations, uh, he traveled all around, he liked to sightsee, but he would always come back with a message. And his message was about all the wonderful things that he'd seen and how those spoke of the majesty and the glory of God. So I pity an atheist when he dies because at the very bare minimum, he should know that there's a God because God has shown enough of his handiwork to show that he exists. And so, and so man is without excuse in relation to the reality of God. But also man is without excuse in relation to the reality of the Savior. Because if there is a God and God has created all things, he's created the world, then certainly we are indebted to this God. We owe our lives to this very God. We owe him our obedience. And so the first thing that any person ought to do is to seek out that God that we know that exists. And so when Peter talks about the ignorance of the people here, he's not saying this like he's trying to soften the blow, like it's really not so bad because it was just an ignorant thing that you did. I mean, you didn't really mean to do that, and you would have done better if you'd really understood better. That is not what he's saying there. What he's showing them is they have willful ignorance of this, and that is ignorance of the worst kind. That's the kind of ignorance that really brings the most punishment upon man. So here are people who crucified Christ, knowing what the Scripture said about him. They crucified him, knowing the miracles that he performed. They observed his life. They crucified him, even knowing that they were the chosen nation of God. God promised a Messiah to them. And so we think what a horrible crime it was to see all of this have proof and truth everywhere in abundant supply and still reject God. But isn't that exactly what people do today? Here we are in America. We have the opportunity to attend church any time that we want to go. The gospel is being preached freely throughout our country. There are people who come and sit in church services just like this one tonight, and they sit under the preaching of the gospel of Christ, and they still refuse to believe. That is willful, gross negligence. And I think that the Bible teaches us that a person who's heard the gospel of Christ and rejects it has the hottest quarter of hell preserved for him. So man is without excuse. And that's what we need to tell people. I mean, those of us that are saved, that's a message that we ought to give. Your ignorance will not excuse you from the wrath of God. Paul said it in Acts 17, perhaps best, when he said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so we're without excuse. We willfully reject Christ. So what does that mean? We willfully rejected him. We've sinned against him. What does it mean? It means that we will face judgment. Now go down to verses number 22 to 24. Here Peter says, 
For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Now, one thing that those verses do, they heap more condemnation, and it further points out the lack of excuse. They had the prophets also. Not just that they saw Jesus and not just the miracles that he did, but they also had the prophets. And the prophets warned them and foretold about the coming of Christ. But we find something else here as well, and that is the prediction of judgment. Every person is going to stand before God in judgment. If you're saved, you'll stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. And at that time, of course, you won't be judged according to whether you're going to heaven or hell, but you'll be judged according to the works that you've done for Christ. And you'll be judged according to the reward that you'll be given for faithful service. And the more that you serve Christ and the more things you do for him, the more rewards that you receive. But that's for saved people. There's another judgment. Those that are still culprits in sin will face the white throne judgment of God. And that is not a judgment for reward. This is not a time to decide, uh, do you have good deeds and bad deeds, and does one outweigh the other? And you know, that's really what most people think. They think that when they stand before God, that's exactly what God's going to do. He's going to have a balance there and try to weigh it out. Do the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds? And if so, he'll let you into heaven. Now, nothing could be clearer than when you talk to people, that's what they think. When you say, are you saved? Or do or, or you believe that when you die that you're going to go to heaven? And most people will say, well, I hope so. I really think so. I mean, I'm not all that bad of a person. So when I die, I think that God's going to let me into heaven. Wrong answer. Because the Bible says at the very best, anything that we do without Christ is nothing but filthy rags. It's the wrong answer. So we've rejected him. People that are still culprits in sin are going to face the judgment of God. But here's the next thing that we see in Peter's sermon because it's not designed to leave men in their sins. Now, he's laid it all out here. He's made it very clear where people stand and what they've done, the sin that they've committed. But Peter has absolutely no intention at all of leaving these people only with that information. He's going to give them more because now he's going to tell them about the truth of Christ. He's talked about the credit for salvation. That goes to God. He's spoken about the culprits of sin. That's all of us who are unbelievers. But thirdly, in his message, he speaks about the Christ for sinners. And Jesus alone is the one who can save. So God alone saves. We alone are responsible for our sins. But Jesus alone can take away our sins. So Peter's message is a message of the gospel. And we'll find here a panorama panorama of the gospel as he lays this out because he begins a sermon with God and he ends it with God and in that is the gospel. So how does he speak in this message? What does he say? Well, first of all, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ died. And so he begins by talking about the dying Savior. Now go back to verses 14 and 15 again. It says, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer be granted unto you. And listen, and killed the Prince of Life. So these people 
killed Christ. It's their act. It's their free act. But it works within the plan of God. In verse number 18, he says, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. So it was in God's plan that Christ would come and he would die for sins. And in fact, the only way that sin could be forgiven is that Christ would die. That's a plan that God devised before the foundation of the world. And so before the first thing was ever created, God knew that a Savior would be needed. And it was God's love that caused him to send his own son, to send the Savior. Now here we have men that are lost, men that are guilty, men that are condemned because of sin. They need to hear that. And the person is not ready to be saved until he understands that he's lost. He's sinned against God. He's rejected Christ. But the gospel is not designed to leave men there. Because Peter talks about a Savior who died to take away the guilt and the penalty of their sins. Peter says in another place, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, putting put to death in the flesh. So yes, they're guilty, no doubt. We're guilty as well. But praise God, he decided to send a Savior. And the Bible says he died that we might live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's something we got to have burned into our heart and soul. I know most of you have. Most of you here tonight, if not all of you, are saved. And so I'm telling you something that's just old news to you. But this is the good news that the world needs to hear. Peter preached it to a hostile crowd. Here are the very people who killed Christ. Now, do you think that when Peter preaches to them that he's going to fare any better than Jesus did? He's placing all the blame upon them. Do you think Peter's going to walk away with this unscathed? Well, we find out that persecution began when Peter ended this sermon. And they told Peter, you're not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. Stop preaching what you're preaching. Here in verse, or chapter 4, verse 20, Peter replied them in, him and them and he said, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't stop talking about Jesus. And that's a good thing for us to consider, isn't it? Christians, can you stop talking about the things that you've seen and heard? Are we going to let people die and go to hell when there is a Savior? Christ died so they wouldn't have to go to hell? He is a dying Christ for dying sinners. And that's what Peter preached. So Peter spoke of a dying Savior. But Peter can't leave Jesus in the tomb. A dead Savior is not a Savior at all. So, so Peter goes on. He has more to say. Next, he talks about the risen Savior. In verse number 15, he said, You killed the Prince of Life, but he goes on, Whom God raised from the dead. Look at verse 26. Unto you, first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. The way that we receive the blessings of God is through the resurrection of Christ. He blesses no one, and neither can he bless anyone unless he arose from that grave. A dead Savior lying in a tomb somewhere, that's not any help to anyone. A Savior hanging on a cross around somebody's neck, that never helped anyone. A Savior whose body is stolen from the grave, as some people claim, that doesn't help anyone. A Savior with soft blue eyes and long hair hanging on somebody's wall. He never saved anyone. 
This Savior must be a risen Savior, one who came out of the tomb. So Jesus is the resurrected Savior. And the Bible says now he sits at the right hand of God. And so the gospel is how that Christ died and also how that Christ arose from the grave. And so if Peter cannot preach a risen Christ, there's no hope for anyone. There's no reason to talk to the Jews. Speaking to these people, they're not interested in a Christ that's still in the grave. If he's still there in Joseph's tomb, it's fruitless to talk to them. As far as they concern, Christ was a, an ordinary man. He was an imposter. He was a liar. And if he's in the grave, then everything they said about him is true. He did, in fact, do his miracles by the power of the devil, as they claimed, if he's still in the grave. And so if Jesus doesn't come out, he's an imposter, he is a liar, and so are every one of these disciples. So only then, if he comes out of that grave under his own power and his own authority, can he prove the claims? Can he prove who he is? And by that proof, that's what gives Christ the attention that he deserves. And that is exactly what Christ did. He came out of the tomb. And the disciples are eyewitnesses of that fact. So if you want to reach people, and if you want to get people saved, don't forget to tell about Christ's death, but surely don't forget to tell that he arose from the grave. I mean, the resurrection is what validates all the claims of Christ. Without it, He's an imposter. So Peter preached in verse number 15, God hath raised him from the dead. But that's still not enough. You can preach that Christ died, and you can preach that Christ arose from the grave. You can have all the facts, and those facts can be undeniable. You can have all the proof that you could ever want, but it still does nobody any good unless those facts are believed. And so the next thing that Peter did was he preached a trusted Savior. Now, Peter healed the lame man. In verse number 6 of this chapter, he says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's by faith that that man was enabled to walk. And by faith, his soul was saved. Now, our text says here in verse 16, And his name through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, it doesn't do any good to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. The Jews already believed in God. They were perfectly content that they believed in God. It doesn't do any good to believe that Jesus was a pretty good fellow. Lots of people would admit to that and say, yes, Jesus did a lot of good things. He's a good person for us to emulate. Let's try to be like Jesus, try to live like Jesus. But that's not enough. It used to be that there were many people who doubted the existence of Jesus. Back at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th, there was a lot of criticism about this, and people were trying to find out whether Jesus really existed. And lots of people had come to the conclusion, well, there really was no man in, in Israel at that time by the name of Jesus who, who, who uh, had any attention like this at all. But today, no serious scholar at all doubts the existence of Jesus. All, all will admit to that. But that's not enough to save anybody. The only way that a person can be saved is exactly what Peter describes here. It is by faith in his name. And, of course, I'm not talking about just faith in a five-letter name called Jesus, pronounced Jesus. I'm speaking about faith in the power of that name. And that's understanding that Jesus is very God. 
He is Jehovah God. His name means salvation. That's the only way that you're saved. You must believe that here is the God-man who had the power to change lives and, and to raise men from spiritual death and bring them into spiritual life. When Peter preached about the name of Christ, he said very clearly in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now look at verse number 19, because here's what Peter tells them to do with the information. He says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So Peter had preached a message where he made it very clear these people crucified Christ. He wanted to show them they are condemned sinners, but he also wants to tell them it's not hopeless. He says... You need to be saved. And this is something that you do in preaching. You don't lay out all the negatives without coming back with the positives. Don't leave people in despair because anyone who trusts Christ can be saved. So here are people who need to repent. They they must see themselves as, as terrible sinners in the sight of God. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can help them. And so they need to repent and be converted. Conversion means to to turn to God. And so here they are, they're, they're going the wrong way and, and spiritually seek speaking, they're on the wrong road. They need to get on the right road. They need to follow Jesus Christ and put their faith in him. So he says, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Well, after they got on that right road, a wonderful thing would happen to them. All of their sins are blotted out. All the sin is taken away. The sin is rubbed off. It's completely wiped out. And you know, there's a beautiful picture in that. I mean, when you study this and you find out what he's really saying here, the reference comes from the way that they used to write. And, and many times they would write on a table of wax. And, and this is talking about rubbing that wax with a, with a blunt instrument to mar and to destroy the record. And so just as that crippled man is a beautiful illustration of the way that Christ raises us from spiritual death into spiritual life and he heals the sin-sick soul, this is also a beautiful picture here of what Christ does when he, when he saves a person. What happens to that person's sin? The Bible says it's wiped away. The record's completely clear. The psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah said, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love for my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. You know, there are some people who think that, that God is still retaining sins, and they think that, well, if you, if you don't keep up the payments on your salvation, if you're not making the payments on that, then you're going to lose it. So you've got to be good. You've got to do these things. You've got to keep busy because salvation is not complete. It's not finished. You've got to make installments on your salvation. Well, that's as far from the truth as it could possibly be, according to the Word of God. When we are saved, the Bible teaches us that Christ's blood covers all of our sins, past, present, Future sins are all covered under the blood of Christ, all taken care of by a sacrificial death. If there was even one sin, one sin in all of our life that was left up to us to take care of, we would not be able to go into heaven. We'd die. We'd go to hell. But Christ came to pay for all sin. And then, when we understand that, we have the refreshing that he talks about in the last part of verse 19. And the refreshing is that we have peace with God. 
So here is a Savior who must be trusted. We must repent and we must believe the gospel. And you know that's exactly the same message that Peter preached on Pentecost. In that message, 3,000 people got saved. At the end of the message, you remember, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent. He told them to believe. And do you know something, friends? That is the very same message we preach today. We must preach that message because that's the only one by which people can be saved. And the Bible tells us that people will be saved by that message. Jesus said, look up. He said, the, we, the, the fields are white unto harvest. So we need to preach that people must repent and believe. But be aware of this. People will never repent and believe unless somebody takes the message to them. They have to be told. So Peter preached a great message, wonderful message. But yet there's one more thing that he talked about. He spoke of a dying Savior. He spoke of a risen Savior and of a trusted Savior. But he didn't forget to tell them about this also, and that is the coming Savior. Notice what he says in verses 20 and 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So we remember here, Peter preaches that Christ died. Then he preaches that Christ arose. But then Peter says, we're not done with Jesus yet. And Jesus is not done with us yet because Jesus is coming back. He said, he... It means God, God shall send Jesus Christ. And he says when Jesus comes back, then will be the restitution of all things. I actually believe that there's a twofold meaning to that verse, a twofold fulfillment. I think one meaning that it has is that Christ comes into a person's heart. And when Christ comes in, there is a restitution. The Bible says that, that in Adam all of us sinned and all of us died. We're under a curse through the fall of Adam. But when Jesus comes, he restores the spiritual life that was lost through Adam. And so he comes to give us life. The restitution comes. The Bible teaches that that we were sinners, of course, but now we've received this new nature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. The inner being is now cleansed from our sins. Now we have a new spiritual life. And it even goes so far to say that Christ lives in you. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he lives in you. But it also means, this verse means that Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, there will be a restitution. Israel will be restored to the promised land. After the millennial reign is over, the whole world is going to be renovated. It will all be burned up and made anew. Everything's going to be perfect. The curse of sin will be lifted. And so lots of good things are going to happen when Jesus comes back. And so when Peter preached the message, he pointed it specifically at the Jews who killed Christ. But you know what he said? You killed him, but he's willing to forgive this horrible deed that you've done. If only right now you will understand he is the true Messiah. He is the Son of God, and if you'll just believe in him, you can be saved. Look at verses 25 and 26. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you 
from his iniquities. No, I, I like that. He says, unto you first, God. In other words, he's saying, God has blessed you, children of Abraham. God has sent you, Jesus, children of Abraham. He's blessed you by turning you away from your sins. But there's more truth in that statement. He says, God first to you. And what he means is that Christ came to Jews first, but his intention was to bless the entire world. Jews and Gentiles alike can be saved. Let's look at this last statement for your listening sheet tonight. The Jews killed him, the Romans killed him, and we killed him. But God forgives all who come to Jesus Christ by faith. And so that's the message that Peter preached after the first miracle. This is not just a message about healing a lame man. This is a message about healing the world from something that's far worse than that. And so the message does more than just cure the lame. Here is a message that actually raises people from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's the panorama of the gospel. And every person here, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ yourself, it's a message you ought to remember and a message that you ought to tell. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We thank you for uh, this great message that Peter preached. We know the effects of it. We can look back on the story. We can read it. As I said earlier in the message, thousands of people were saved in Jerusalem through the preaching of the apostles. Lord, help us to remember tonight that no one will be saved unless we're willing to give the gospel to people. Help us to be people who witness for you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.